0: Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. This is Victor Shi. I will be an incoming freshman at UCLA next year, and also one of the co-hosts of this podcast.
1: And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experiences as the only woman on the Watergate trial team, and um, also co-hosting this podcast. And very pleased today to have a very special guest, Mark Cuban. Thank you for being with us. I'm sure that everyone who's listening today already knows who Mark is. Of course, he's the owner of the Dallas Mavericks and a star of Shark Tank, uh, among many other impressive things. Uh, We plan to discuss today with Mark about sports and how teams can proceed under COVID uh, and what the future of sports post-COVID may be, as well as the role of sports teams in terms of the social movements of today. And um, I'd also like to talk to him about his time on Shark Tank. I know that our audience would be very interested in hearing about that and maybe giving some advice to Victor's generation uh, and the future entrepreneurs and leaders of tomorrow based on his Shark Tank experience and his ownership of a sports team. So thank you very much for being with us, Mark. Victor is going to start our conversation with you. Thanks
2: for
0: having me, guys. I'm looking forward to it. Of course. Okay, so i um... By this time of year, you know, under normal circumstances, we usually see football teams kick off with tens of thousands of fans. Also, basketball teams are um, just about to begin. Usually, um, but obviously, with this pandemic, we're seeing. Sports being reimagined both on the professional and collegiate level. So um for the college sports, one of my friends was saying how his university, Notre Dame, is putting up plastic cardboard figures of students to replace real students um, to give that effect of a live audience. And you know, as you know, on the professional level, many games are completely without an audience. Um, yet we're seeing Donald Trump, you know, say we need sports to come back. And um, you know, undoubtedly this COVID-19 pandemic is gonna hurt. Revenue for sports players and teams. So, I guess tell us, based off your experience with the Dallas Mavericks, what you think the best approaches for teams to take during this um, unprecedented time?
2: Well, first and foremost, safety, right? Because you can't do anything. No one's going to trust you if your players, staff, stakeholders aren't safe. You know, and, and that's really the greatest challenge when it comes not just to sports um, or live entertainment, but to all business. You know, people want to feel confident that wherever they go, whatever they're they're going to do, they're going to be safe. And so that's the first and foremost challenge. Um, From there, then it depends on the circumstances because, you know, over the the last seven months now since um, the NBA shut down um, and suspended play, so much has changed, but Mm -hmm. hasn't quite changed enough, right? You know, we first, when the pandemic first started, we, we just knew that there was risk. We didn't know how much risk. And I think we were a little bit arrogant as Americans that we were just going to blaze right through this and we will get this fixed because that's what we do. Um, and it's possible we could have if we had followed you know the appropriate protocols and, and taken the appropriate steps. Who knows? But um, the reality is here we are seven months later, give or take a few days, and we still have that same uncertainty, but at least there's hope with a vaccine. And I happen to be one of those people that is confident that the vaccine will come and work. You know, I know a lot of people are comparing this to vaccine remedies from previous um, previous bio, viral diseases um, or viruses. But the reality is this is the first time we've ever seen the entire world pretty much work together to come up with a solution. So that gives me confidence and hope. And how that applies to the NBA is that with a vaccine that people take and are confident in, You take one course of action, and that's hopefully opening things up, making sure you have a clean environment, making sure you have as much of a touch, you know, hands-free, touch-free environment as you can, and making people feel confident and safe. If we don't have a vaccine, then all bets are off. And you'll see some of what you're seeing in in stadiums with football, and we've seen it in arenas as well um, for different types of sporting events and other events where you're going to have limited capacity and everybody's gonna to have to social distance. And there's gonna be a very specific course of action that every fan has to take in order to participate. And so obviously my hope is for the former that we get to uh vaccine and, and it works. Um, because if that's the case, then I think from a business perspective for us, there's gonna be an enormous snapback of demand. There is so much cabin fever, so much pent up demand for people to get out <laughs> and be confident when they leave the house, right? That they're going to be looking for things to do that are very communal, and going to a sporting event is certainly one of those things.
0: You talked about, you know, the need for a vaccine. You talked about the need for, you know, putting the safety and health of um, everyone first. Compared to the NFL, um, which most recently saw Cam Newton test positive, which resulted then in games being postponed, it seems like the NBA is doing much better in terms of the number of players testing negative for the virus. So um, first, what is the NBA doing that's you know going so effectively? And how should other sports leagues and associations change their current framework to make it more like the NBA's model?
2: Well, there's a couple of things there, um, Victor. One, the NFL teams, the players, there's 53 players on a team. Compared to 17 for the NBA, um, in terms of staff, you know there can be more than 100 plus for an NFL team, whereas far fewer for the NBA. And that that smaller size allowed us to do a bubble at Walt Disney World, and so we were able cr- to create a safe environment, which we also did for Shark Tank. We kind of won up the, um, the NBA um, and did a Shark Tank bubble, which allowed us to shoot season 12. But so by creating a bubble, we were able to keep everybody safe. We had zero test, uh, zero positives, of course, across the course of time that, um, well, there's another game Friday night in the finals um, with the Lakers versus the Heat, everybody tune in on ABC, but um, we've been able to keep everybody safe in the bubble. Whereas with the NFL, they've tried to take the, the steps that they hope can keep people safe, but there's still a matter of trust that didn't enter enter into the equation with the NBA. Because in the NBA, if you didn't follow the exact protocols within the bubble, then you were kicked out of the bubble, right? There were, there were no, you know, we weren't taking any risks. We weren't, we were trying to reduce our probability of infection to as low as we could possibly get it. Um, the NFL, that's difficult because guys are traveling to different cities. Teams are traveling to different cities. Um, players are not all just staying together in a quarantine effectively hotel. And so there's far more touch points and so it's it's unfortunate that the NFL has had players test test positively and those numbers are growing, um, but it's, you know, it's not unlikely, you know, it, it would have been very difficult to go positive test free. And look, even with the NBA in a bubble environment, we expected there to be positive tests. We really did because you just, it's very difficult to control. And there's so many uncertainties as, as it relates to the virus and transmission um, that you try to, you know, put your finger in all the, the holes in the in the dam. But, um, you know, we were fortunate in that we really didn't get caught. But it's going to be difficult for the NFL and for other sports. The sports that will have it the easiest are those like the NBA who can play in the bubble. But, again, you know, now that the NBA, the NHL, MLB is winding down um, and as we look forward to next season, I don't think anybody wants to play in a bubble again. So we're all really, really hoping that we get a vaccine and people are confident in it.
1: So following up on that, um, that leads to the question of when do you think there might be um, a time we can return to normal? Because you are so right when you said people are getting cabin fever and would love to go to a sports event, um, would love to go to the theater, would love to go to whatever their special cultural event is. Even just a movie would be a delight. And so, do you think we'll ever go back to the pre-COVID non-restrictions um, in yeah.
2: sporting events? Yeah, I think we will for sure. I mean, think back to 1918. There were there were sporting events back then, and they were less literate um, scientifically about responding to a virus, um, and had to go through you know a full course effectively of of spread, um, and yet here we are a hundred years later, and until this hit it of the year, we don't think about that at all. Now we don't want to have to wait hundred years, right? But you know, growing up, no one there was never a thought in my mind um, that you know we had to worry about viruses and pandemics. I mean, we've seen the swine flu, we've seen Ebola, we've seen a lot of these things. But you know, again, maybe it's arrogance, but we didn't we didn't think that they were going to change our way of life like this has. And so, just like they got through it and got to the other side, and there was this, there was normalcy. Um, I think we'll do that again, and I think we'll be a lot smarter going forward. And you just hope, you know, that over the course of time, we don't forget. You know, like you were involved with Watergate, and it seems that we've forgotten a lot of those lessons from the '70s. And you just hope at some point we don't forget those lessons going forward.
1: Right, I agree. Although I, I do hope that a hundred years hence, uh, just as we are now, a hundred years after the uh, Spanish flu, that people Uh, We'll learn from that. And of course, we have much better scientific capabilities now. And as you said, the world has come together on that. Unfortunately, we have partly dropped out of the world (laughs) by dropping out of the World Health Organization. But let's continue sort of on a non-COVID part of sports, which is what's happening in sports in terms of politics and what the role of sports are. I mean, sports athletes are heroes to many Americans, they set a tone, they can communicate a message in ways that no one else can. Uh, the Colin Kaepernick bending a knee was certainly a dramatic presentation of that. And so what I wanna look at is, of course, he's paid a heavy price for that. Um, and I, I'm old enough that I remember back to uh, Cassius Clay, um, mm-hmm. who became Muhammad wow. Ali, And the price that he paid for, um, you know, for taking a political popular position. So in the aftermath of George Floyd, what do you think the role of sports athletes and teams is in this movement for Black Lives Matter or whatever the next uh, political issue happens to be?
2: You know, athletes across almost all sports make the choice whether or not they're going to become a brand. And how big a brand they want to become you know you don't have to be on instagram or twitter or facebook for that matter or TikTok these days for that matter right and if you are you don't have to try to send a global message or try to build your fan base you know even if you're the best player in your league you know you can choose to have just a minimal presence but when you choose to have a significant presence like some of our athletes have you have every right to use it, and you know, because you've chosen to become that person, right? That's that's the beauty of this country. When when you get a platform, it's yours to use in this social media environment. And I'm proud of our guys. Now, I don't always agree with them, but that's okay. You know, they, they've worked hard to get to where they are. They worked hard to let people know what they care about. And it's completely up to them as individuals. And the NBA is more of a personality-driven sport than almost any other. You know, when you think of the biggest personalities in this country, particularly based off their social media followings, it's almost all, I mean, it pretty much is all NBA players. You know, they see us, we're in games. I mean, everybody, you know, knows who our biggest name players are. And you see some players use that platform and others don't. In terms of the league, it's kind of the same thing. You know, because of our players, because of our governors, because of, who we are as an organization, you know, we have a culture that we've cultivated over 40, 50 years. This isn't something that just pops up. The NBA has always been socially active, always. We've always taken taken a stand and mm-hmm. trying to really have an impact and moving what we think are the best ideals for the United States and really are, are you know, what all come back to the, the fundamental understanding of liberty and justice for all not for some, for all. And to me, when you stand up for proven American ideals, and I'm I'm not talking about party, right? You know, all parties and all individuals can have their own political thoughts. But when you stand up for, you know, ideals that are part and parcel to the United States of America, then I think you're doing the right thing. And yeah, there's, there's going to be haters, there's going to be people who advocate against you. But that's okay, like you brought up Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay turning to Muhammad Ali. During the prime of his fighting career, he wasn't allowed to fight because he wouldn't go to Vietnam. And he stood up for what he believed in. Look at the 1980 Olympics, we backed out. Look at the 1968 Mexico Olympics when you had, um, I always get these names, I think Juan, Juan Carlos, John Carlos, and, or John Smith, I forget, the, the three track guys that got on the, the days and held their arms up um, in um, solidarity. And so there's always going to be um, athletes that use their platform. And I mean, going back to Jesse Owens, you know, we, we stood behind Jesse Owens in the Berlin Olympics in 1936. We take pride in it. It's just that right now, when when you have a dearth of leadership, that it's really difficult. A lot of the, these, these topics become very divisive because people just are bandwagoners. They fall to their side, right? They want to be on their team. And that's unfortunate, but that's what happens when there's a lack of leadership. It's
1: so interesting because I think one of the reasons that possibly the NBA players are so much better known is that you can actually see them while they're playing. Yeah. They aren't covered up with helmets and shoulder pads. Sure. And the only thing you can tell is if you read their name, you can see them. Um, and, and it reminds me of a couple things. One, which is uh, I'm from Chicago and yeah. Michael Jordan is maybe the biggest hero of the nba ever in the history of the nba and when i used to when i first started traveling to europe it was always if you said you were from chicago people would go oh the mafia (laughs) all right now (laughs) you go to europe and for maybe not now right now but uh a few years ago, you would go and they'd say, oh, the home of Michael Jordan. Yep. So it really became that he was, he represented Chicago. And, um, so that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um,
2: of course. yeah.
1: yeah. And, and when you talk about the, the impact of sports people, it's, it is important to know their names and what they stand for and what their brand is. Um, I, when I first started practicing law, was not a sports fan except for the Cubs. I've always been a Cubs fan, but at, at the coffee, you know, I was always the only woman in the room. And so when it came time for a coffee break, the conversation was always about sports and I was sort of would lag behind. And so I finally developed, my husband would give me a sports line of the day. I could go into the room and say, wasn't Kareem Jabbar great last night? And, participate in the conversation. So it's it's also part of our culture.
0: In the aftermath of George Floyd's protest, one of the good things that came out of that was that my generation started to look at some of these race related issues with a skeptical eye. We started questioning a lot of these assumptions. Um, you know, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement in the aftermath of that, we saw a lot of these corporations kind of come out and say they would support it openly. And then, you know, our generation would kind of notice that, you know, there's no diversity on their boards or that the board of directors right. are you know, overheard making comments behind Closed doors that don't reflect uh, their point of view of supporting Black Lives Matter. So, um, you know, in terms of the NBA and other sports organizations in general, is there more work to be done when it comes to achieving racial justice and equality? Um, and if not, you know, what can be done about that?
2: Yeah, and that's not an NBA issue. You know, that's that's a global issue. That's a United States issue. Systemic is, systemic racism is, is something that is a challenge, right? there, there it's always got to be addressed. And it's not something that's going away quickly. And so, you know, every corporation has got to make their own decision on what they're going to do and whether or not they're going to be evolved or be apolitical. You can't tell somebody what to do, but at the same time, you know, Gen Z, your generation is very cognizant of what they are or are not doing, how they treat their employees. You know, is there diversity? What communities are are they focused on? Um, Are they taking steps to, not only, you know, check off the boxes for diversity, diversity and inclusion, but actually walking the walk and and not just talking the talk. Right. And, you know, and remember your generation is going to grow up when, when, um, um, Jill and I were kids, right. It was hippies and sex, drugs and rock and roll. And, you know, don't trust anyone over 30 and mom. (laughs) And, you know, it was, if you would have told me that, um, that generation from when i was a little kid would grow up to be the boomers that are conservative republicans i would have laughed laughed at you so it really comes down to your generation in terms of ending racism right having cultural changes how what do you guys do because corporations can talk all they want and spend money and all that but you're the consumer right you're who they want to reach you're on the social you understand social media and branding yourself every Gen Z person on social media is their own brand. If I go and look at your TikToks, if you're on TikTok or your Instagrams, right? Or look at anything you put on YouTube, you you present yourself the way you want people to see you. And so do all of your friends and peers. And you as a consumer are gonna be looking for the same things in in companies you do business with. Do they have the same social goals and the same social um, desires that you guys do, right? Because if somebody doesn't live up to the expectations that you have, you're not going to buy their products because you certainly don't want to be seen in a TikTok video with a brand wearing a brand or repping a brand or near a brand that doesn't represent your social values. And so as much as we'd like to see the um, corporations lead the way, and in some cases they'll try, they can invest in communities, they can invest in um They can invest in people of color and LGBTQ people and give them capital to create companies and those things are all great, but that's not gonna end racism. You know, it's going to take your generation, you know, talking to each other. People of Jill and my generation, white people can't talk about race. We never talk about race. In your generation, it's no big deal. An Asian person can talk to a black person who can talk to a white person and talk about race and everybody's comfortable. When you see a friend, when you see an interracial couple, you don't think twice. The baby boomer generation still has to double take because that's the antithesis of what we grew up with. When I was a kid in Pittsburgh, um, the Pittsburgh Pirates were the first baseball team to have an all non-white lineup. And that upset people to no end. Now we don't care because my generation back then didn't care, right? But now we have to take it to the next level. And it really, I'm putting the pressure on you, Victor, (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh God! Like
2: your generation that, that's got to lead the way because it is, the it is up to
1: his generation but i i also was raised in a home where i was taught to accept people based on their qualifications absolutely. not on the color of their skin
2: on that point um jill yeah. because, you know our peers growing up right you know we the voting right acts was still brand new Right. Mm -hmm. There were still people trying to keep African-Americans and African-American women from voting. So while your family and my family may have been raised the same way. Mm -hmm. Right. Where you don't ever. I mean, no. Right. Everybody's equal. You treat everybody with respect, no matter what they look like or where they're from. That's how I was raised. But my neighbors. Oh, my, you know, they were a different beast. My friends, dads were different. And so, you know, the generations were different.
0: Yeah. And I do have to test. Um yeah. I don't have TikTok, but um my my peers who, who do have TikTok, um they I can attest to the fact that um social media is part of our identity. Like we, you know, we attach our Instagram handles, our Twitter handles to everything that we do. Um, because it's like the power of social media is incredible and um my generation knows how to navigate that. It's it's really yeah,
2: cool. Yeah. You take the same picture over and over and over again to get it right. But yeah. how many pictures you'll go through just to get the perfect picture up? It's like you're an ad agency with brand Victor, right? And that's how all your peers are. But that is so powerful because in terms of consumerism and, and defining the economy and what corporations will do going forward, particularly as you get out into the workforce, you're gonna you're gonna recognize that. And you're not gonna do business with anybody who doesn't match up with your values. And that is so powerful. And so what I say to to companies today that I talk to is like, how you treat your customers, how you treat your employees is how your brand will be defined for the next 20 years. Because the younger millennials and Gen Z, they're not forgiving, you know, not forgiving at all. And you just have a completely different viewpoint. And when you get into the workplace, you're much more entrepreneurial than your, than older generations. And so you're going to look for new ways to compete with those people who are out of touch.
1: Before I go to the next question, I want to follow up on some of the things you've said, which is, as the millennials and Gen Z and Gen X are branding themselves, I think they're not always thinking about what it means when they get out of high school, when they get out of college, when they go to apply for a job, their brand is online and employers are looking at it. So the stupid things you do and post may actually keep you from getting a job. So that's one thing that they need to think about. The other thing when we were talking about the 60s, 70s, um, let's not forget what sexism meant in terms of women and the discrimination was, yes, absolutely. African-Americans were definitely nope. discriminated against, but so were women. Help wanted ads, which was how you got a job then in a newspaper were categorized as help wanted male, help wanted female. But, so let's go on to um, and, your what, current interchange. We
2: got, we go ahead. Close to the ERA passed, right? And it's still short, you know, close. For, it still fell short. And so, no, I agree with you wholeheartedly, Joe. Yeah. So
1: you've had a recent exchange with Senator Ted Cruz uh, as part of your being politically active. I want to just read you um, one of the tweets that he posted recently. Um, I love at Houston Rockets and have rooted for them my entire life. I happily cheer for the Spurs and Mavericks against any non-Texas team. But at MCUBAN, Mark Cuban uh, and the NBA are engaged in a concerted effort to one, insult their fans, and two, turn every game into a left-wing political lecture. That's dumb. So what's your reaction, you know, to that tweet, um, and are ratings dropping,
2: as Ted Cruz and Donald Trump claim? What, two two different questions there. One, what's yes. my... Um, nice to know where our senator from Texas is spending his time, <laughs> you know, and, and how we, he's, he's prioritizing things. And two are our ratings down? Well, it depends on how you compare. them. To Victor's point early on, we're not playing in our regular season and we're not playing in an environment where, you know, that they're trying to compare ratings to. They're comparing ratings that are apples and oranges. As Victor mentioned, we're typically just getting our season started. And so not only were our TV broadcasts competing, were not only were our TV broadcasts not typically when people would find our playoffs and end of season. Um, but also Major League Baseball, the NHL, the NFL, horse racing, um, you name it, all the way down the list, you know, the start of the TV season, all were competing for the same viewers. And so rather than just looking at us, look at the other sports. The NFL is down, not as much as us, but this is their season, right? And you can look at the NFL being down as as a, you know, result of court cutting and, and, you know, more – fragmentation of audience because of more content choices. You know, what would our ratings be if we were on Netflix or Amazon Prime, you know, because the the NBA audience is much younger than any other sport. And so by definition, you know, our audience cuts the cord more. But in terms of interest in the NBA, there was a survey that just came out, um, Morning Consult, I think, that said among Gen Z in particular, The the NFL was the number one sport with 49% interested, and the NBA was the number two sport with 47% interested, and nobody else was close. But back to ratings, if you look at the NHL ratings, they were down significantly. And again, but they faced the same issues that we faced. But let's look at horse racing, right? The Triple Crown, the Preakness, the um, Kentucky Derby, and what's the other one? I forget. The one thing we know about horses, you can't say that they're woke, you know, you can't say that they have a political opinion, yet their um, their broadcast viewership was down significantly and more than ours. And so it's not just an issue of politics. It's an issue of so many different things in terms of what's happening in the media coming together. Would I like our numbers to be higher? Of course, I'd like our numbers to be higher. Do I think they'll bounce back to, you know, where on the normal projection where they would be because of cord cutting everything? Yes. Our biggest challenge is trying to create an equilibrium between the fact that we're most popular, we're the most popular sport among young kids, right? Mm -hmm. It's not even close. And, you know, we talked about social media following, et cetera, but those young kids don't have cable and satellite yet. That's where most of our games are broadcast. So that's our challenge in terms of business. How do we disrupt ourselves so that we're able to have our our fans watch the games where, how, and when they watch them? And two, you know, Gen Z consumes content in much smaller bites than we do, right? They want to watch the highlights. They're on TikTok. They're on Instagram. They can tell you about a LeBron dunk. And two seconds after it happens, they're seeing it on Instagram. But how do we turn that into business for the NBA and monetize that? and make it so that our advertisers can also compete. So it's not to say that we don't have challenges, but it's not so much about the popularity of the NBA, it's the nature of change in media and consumption.
1: Yeah, so sticking with your political activism and what you've been doing, um, I I read something about you were coming up with a stimulus plan, uh, which right now is in danger as we understand it, and that you were proposing a. $1,000 stimulus check be given to families. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what your plan is and why you think that would be effective?
2: So historically, when we try to build up the economy, um, whether it's in difficult times like this or otherwise, um, the Republicans like to do trickle down, right? Reduce taxes and open up. Try to open things up so it's easy for easier for entrepreneurs to start businesses and that in turn would lead to people hiring or there's more money available for corporations to hire more people and that trickle down tip does not work right it works a little bit on the margin but it's not it doesn't lead to wholesale increases in employment the democrats have their own version of trickle down they say let's let's um invest in new programs and by getting people to apply for those programs and to participate in programs, it'll trickle down to them. And then they'll benefit, and that'll help everybody. I take a, a completely different look that we're in a consumer-driven economy that 66% of our GDP is driven by consumption. And rather than going through the middleman, the corporations and making money easier for them via you know reduction in tax dollars or other mechanisms, loans, whatever it may be, or just funding these programs um, and hoping it gets down to people in need, I'd rather just drop the money in people's laps. And I'm not talking about UBI where this is an extended um, thing that's available all the time forever. What I've said is that every two weeks for some limited period of time during the pandemic, initially two months, cause you can always just, um, ex- extend it. Then we'd get every two weeks, we'd give people a thousand dollars, but there's a stipulation. They have to spend it within ten days, because because what happens is that's this, this is what I'm what I look at as being trickle up, not trickle down, but trickle up, right? Because people will that'll allow people to pay the rent, that'll allow people to buy the things that are of necessity to them, and that prevents the government from keeping alive businesses that consumers don't want to keep alive, right? You know, it's it it sounds good on, in theory to give money to restaurants and to all these businesses and that keeps people employed and that was a good idea early on like right at the beginning of the pandemic when we didn't think it would last this long let's just give businesses some money so that they can keep their employees on payroll and that's cheaper than having people go on unemployment economically that made perfect sense now where we're at we're going through this process called creative destruction you know when people don't go to restaurants it's not that they don't eat it's they, found di- they find different ways to eat and entertain themselves at the same time. When they don't go to sporting events and movies, it's not that they're not being entertained. They're finding different mechanisms, different ways to be entertained. So rather than trying to keep afloat businesses that may not deserve, that maybe shouldn't be kept afloat because habits and buying um, and, and w- how we buy things has changed, by giving money to people to spend, one, it allows them to take care of the necessities. Two, it allows those businesses that they want to do businesses to stay alive because three, it's the most efficient way. There's nothing in the middle to reduce the amount of money available, right? So if you do it through a trickle down, it has to go through multiple steps. If you do it through democratic trickle down, it has to go through multiple steps of the government and each step of the way makes it less efficient. And so by having it use it or lose it within the 10 days, that money gets stimulated right into the economy immediately to those businesses that need to be taken that where people want to spend their money. And so you don't have to worry about rent abatements. You don't have to worry about, you know, lease abatements and people or mortgages not getting paid um, because that's what people are going to pay with that money. And then once they've paid, hopefully their rent and two weeks later, they get another thousand dollars. Same thing you know, they can use it for groceries, they can use it for whatever, but allowing um, American citizens to make those choices, it takes care of their necessities, and it truly is a trickle up. Now, I've also said in in corollary to that, that I think we need a transitional jobs program, that there are a lot of jobs that would be very productive in this country, tracking and tracing, as an example, you know, working to um, helping um, those who are Um, at risk of COVID virus because, you know, it's very difficult for them to get care and support. And it's also very dangerous because they they typically don't have much economically. And so they have to trust almost anybody who comes to their door. And so you've seen a lot of, lot of, of older people get sick and die. Whereas if this is an organized program, not only will it work now not only will it be safer but we know that you know boomers are the fastest aging demographic and we're living longer than our predecessors right and so you're going to need people that are going to be there for old age homes and you know be there to provide healthcare for an aging population so these are among the jobs that are very productive that can immediately help people um, have a productive job and also contribute to the economy so that was the, that was the logic behind my thinking
1: Boy, I am so glad I asked that question. Uh, that was a great answer. And although maybe the biggest headline of the answer was coming from you as one of the most successful entrepreneurs and businessmen in our country
2: is that trickle down does not work. That's no, a big headline. Well, remember, just trickle down on both sides, right? I don't want to take sides, right? Yeah. Trickle down does yeah. Republicans and trickle down does not work for Democrats either. Mm-hmm. Trickle up does work. Yeah.
0: So I know that you also considered running for president. Um. And so let's say, you know, you are Mark, President Mark Cuban right now, and you uh-huh. face this uh, COVID, um, you know, pandemic, is, is this what you would do? Or what would you do to combat some of the economic devastation that we now face?
2: Well, first step, you have to be honest, you have to be transparent, and you have to allow people who know what they're doing to talk, right, and listen to them. Second, you have to be clear that but science is trial and error. And we're when you get into something that's new, like the COVID virus, you're not gonna have answers all the time. It's gonna be a work in progress. And we're gonna continue to try to get smarter about it. So if something we thought made sense in March doesn't make sense in October, that's not unusual. So that, those are the first things you have to communicate. Um, the second thing you need to do is mandate masks. This is not a freedom issue. This is no different than seatbelts because the only way that people are going to be safe is by wearing masks or staying home. Or, you know, yeah, you can stay out of people's ways and, and you know, but realistically, you're going to need masks. Not only are you going to need masks, but you're going to need to get people the right masks, right? And I'm not saying we all use N95s, but, you know, the, the cost benefit analysis of buying people masks and making them available to them is far less of a cost than what we're seeing as an impact unemployment in the economy um, that we're seeing now, right? And so those are the the basic blocking and tackling things that I would do. And then again, once you build up trust in leadership, and just show any leadership and compassion, then people are going to have a lot more confidence in a vaccine. Mm -hmm. Because they're going to say, you know what, this person has been honest and authentic with us. He's been as transparent as he's allowed to be. He hasn't held back Where there's been differing opinions, he's been open about them and brought them to the forefront so they can be discussed. He recognizes that science is about trial and error, so there's risk to everything. But you know what? I'm going to trust this vaccine. And that key, that trust, is the linchpin to how we move forward.
0: Yeah. I hope that if not, not that Donald Trump and Mike Pence are probably listening, but if they are listening, <laughs> uh, take a couple of lessons from Mark because those are um, so needed right now during this time. Um, let's switch to a lighter topic and one of the last topics of today's discussion, um, which is, you know, many fans adore you because of your time on Shark Tank. Um, you mentioned this at the outset of the podcast um, that, you know, you guys are. Filming differently now for season twelve. Um, first, what's been your experience like on Shark Tank? Because Jill and I, we find Shark Tank fascinating. Um, but what's it like being on with you know the Mister Wonderful or being on you know <laughs> a judge on Shark Tank?
2: I love it. I love it. And and I don't do it um, for any reason more than it sends a great message to potential entrepreneurs that somebody walking on that you could be that person walking on the carpet and pitching us the deal. And even if you don't make it to Shark Tank look at the, you know, the people that come on the Shark Tank are probably, someone's probably just like you. And if they can do it, you can do it. And that message that it sends is just, to me, so valuable and so important. Um, And that's why I do the show. Now, in terms of, is it fun? It's, it's fun most of the time, right? Because the, you know, we all get along and we all like each other. Even Kevin, even though he's a jerk, sometimes you (laughs) still like him as a, um, but the, you know, the battles and the animosity and the the heat that goes on, you know, it, it it it's real. It's all real. But because of that, there's no more joy in life than dunking on Mr. Wonderful. You know, it's just part of, you know, the the fun of it or taking the deal from any of the other sharks. So I love doing it. It sends a great message. And oh, by the way, our premiere episode is Friday, October 16th on ABC. Ooh. So it's coming up. So check it out. It's and this season you know we alluded to it earlier we were literally in a bubble and so it was a completely different way of shooting um all the sharks are six and a half feet apart the the entrepreneurs we don't get to high five them or play with them or talk you know get up close to them they all are social distance and and more than social distanced away um but the the entrepreneurs also had to quarantine And the fact that they spent eight days in quarantine meant they were committed to being there, that this was incredibly important to them. And so the deals are better. I did more deals this season, season 12 coming up than I did in any season prior. So it's intense. The bubble was intense. Literally, I got up in the morning, someone knocked on my door that looked like they just came out of a a science fiction movie. (laughs) We walked down the hall. We had to take one specific elevator. We had to follow tape on the floor and tape on the wall. We went to hair and makeup. Well, first we went and changed. I changed into my suit. Went to hair and makeup. They basically had hazmat suits on. Did hair and makeup. There was wow. a camera person that watched our every move to make sure we had ad- ad- adhered to all the protocols. Shot on the set. Started at 9 a.m. shooting. Had an hour for lunch. Shot until 7 p.m. Went back up to my room. Ate. Worked out. Went to sleep. Rinse and repeat the exact same thing every single day. Oh my so. God. Yeah, it it was a grind at some level, but it was still well worth it.
0: Yeah, and we hope that our audience tunes in next Friday, uh, the sixteenth, um, on ABC. I'm so excited for the season. Wow, that 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 is very exciting. <laughs> me, me too, and I have another
1: question about Shark Tank, which is um, needs a little bit of background. When I was doing some research about you before doing this episode, um, I suddenly started getting ads for products and endorsed by Shark Tank, which I suppose isn't a surprise, because we all know whatever research you do leads to ads. Um, I clicked on one of them just to follow through to see it. And what I found was that it ended up saying that it was the one time in the history of Shark Tank that all of you had
2: huh? the keto ads and all that.
1: Apparently. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but then I found that there was more than one that claimed that it was all five yeah. of you had agreed. One was the keto ad. One was two sisters um, who did apparently get funding from one or more of you, but it wasn't for a diet product. So no. are you being hacked? What's happening? No. Why, are, yeah. why, why am a, I getting all these fake ads? It's a scam
2: and we hate it. What, what platform were you on? Were you on Facebook?
1: No, oh, I did research through
2: Google. Just on Google? Okay. I'm making yeah. a note. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. Because it's a scam. And we've <laughs> done everything possible with the FBI and others and law enforcement to get those folks shut down. Um, and it's horrible because I get emails once every few months or every few weeks now. Yeah. Um, Somebody who bought them and they can't turn it off. And they realize it's a scam. And they email me. And I feel awful tell them they have to you know, close your credit card and you know, you know, tell the credit card company what's going on. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a scam and I'm gonna reach out to Google. And, cause I don't realize it came up when you searched for one of the sharks because I, I hadn't seen it's, that. It did.
1: And, and I also got text messages um, from the keto ad. So it oh, was, wow. and it was oh, one wow. of those things I looked at and went, wow, if Shark Tank thought this was good Maybe it's that miracle product. And all of us during COVID have had a little bit of a, you know, comfort food eating thing. So I was thinking, well, this is really wonderful that I did this and I'm going to get this product. And then when I researched it further, it was clear that it was a scam and that it wasn't something that Shark Tank had done. But so I didn't I didn't get taken. Um, But let me just ask you. So um, what would you say your most successful investment has been? since you've been on Shark Take, you know, sure. one or two, however many you think is yeah, the most
2: there, wonderful thing you've done. Um, called Panoramic, that wrote an app for the um, the iPhone that was an early equivalent of computer vision, right? It, now, the iPhone, it required the iPhone to be a certain um, format or a certain layout, right? So it had to have the flat bezel. If you remember back to the iPhone 4, you could just stand it up and then using the sensors, yeah. it would turn and you can create a panoramic video. Well, when the iPhone changed it the way it looked and the the features of the physical features of it, we had to pivot to full computer vision. And fast forward five years later, um, if you go to the Carvana website and look to buy a car online through them, you can you can see that you can open up the any for any car you can open up the car door, look at spin it, look at you know turn it upside down, see any any mm-hmm. actual piece of the car. That was what the um, panoramic um, software evolved to. And we sold that company a couple years ago to Carvana back when the stock was 18. Last time I looked, the stock was like 200 plus. So that by wow. far is my blow away best deal. And I've had, you know, of the 150 give or take um, companies that I've done on Shark Tank over 10 years that I've been on, um, it follows a normal distribution. You know, I've sold and done really well with 10%. I've, you know, sold and done okay and or they're operating a returning cash flow with another fifteen percent, twenty-five percent suck, and the other fifty percent are you know chugging along, you know, as good businesses.
1: Sounds like a, a regular record for a successful entrepreneur, I'd say. Yeah. Has there ever been a time when all of you have invested in one? Just going back to that fake ad that yeah. says that that was there the
2: one. Was one. uh Oh, cupboard pro. That's what it was. So there was. Um, a fireman who dreamed of coming on shark tank and he had a cut, a cutting board that was really cool. It had this unique design where, you know, oh, it had to catch all for any um, moisture and for any of your remnants, you know, when you're done chopping, I'm not a big cook, but you know, and you push it onto this thing. It was really cool. Um, but he, he had, he had, um, been part of nine 11 and then one of the fire trucks called in nine 11 and ended up catching cancer and ended up dying. And his kids And right around the same time, his wife died of cancer as well. It was just a horrific story. And his kids wanted to keep his dream alive. And they all came on Shark Tank together. And so Cupboard Pro got a deal from all five of us. And the company's just crushing it. The three kids are just doing amazing things. Um, So I'm really proud that we were able to do this with them. And we continue to donate the profits to... um, Mr. Young's firehouse where he was a fireman uh, for their foundation. Okay, I have to buy a cutboard pro. pro, Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Okay, so to draw this discussion to an end, um, I have to say, Mark, um, you you probably know this, but you are literally an icon for my generation for both being on Shark Tank and also um, being the owner of um, uh, the Dallas Mavericks. And going into this podcast, I know I was talking to my peers and I was like, Mark Cuban might come on or Mark Cuban is going to come on. And they were all like, no way. But, you know, for students who are about to go into college, there's so much uncertainty from the job market to online school. So, you know, I want to ask you for those who want to be an entrepreneur or business person like yourself, um, what advice would you give them as they navigate these really strange and uncertain times?
2: So for, in my opinion, going to school is a good thing. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to know the language of business. You have to know about financing. You have to know about accounting. You have to know about marketing. You have to know about sales. Um, you have to know computer science to at least a certain level. Because when you, the things you don't know, you're immediately dependent on somebody else. And that means having to go out there and either partner and give up equity or raise money because you need to hire certain positions and you know you can't afford to do it by yourself the more you know the more equity you get to control because you're less dependent at the beginning on somebody else so that's part one so going to college for and and taking um, business classes is very beneficial and i'm all for it in terms of which college you know you need to go to a college you can afford because the one thing that keeps you from starting a business is debt you know and so you know, if I was just going to Indiana today, most likely I would go to a local community college or do it online. I would take classes online, to test out of, of classes at school so that I would reduce my overall um, potential um, tuition bills and costs. Um, so go to a school that you can afford. Three, you don't have to know what you're gonna be when you grow up, right? The, the beauty of entrepreneurship these days is you know, it could be anything. It could it could be absolutely anything. And a lot of kids start, you know, I know I want to start a business. I don't know what I want to do. What should I start? You know, the more things you expose yourself to, the more you learn. Um, sooner or later, you're going to find something you love to do. It might not happen in school. It might not happen until two, three, five years out of school. But once you find something you love to do, then bust your ass to be great at it. Because nobody quits anything they're great at. And when you love doing something and you're really good, that's always the perfect foundation of a business. And then finally, you have to love to learn. You know, technology is just, everything changes, right? One day there's not a pandemic, the next day there is. You know, there's so much is evolving in technology that you have to be excited to learn because you're going to be competing with me. And if you're not out there spending as much time learning as I do, I'm spending three, four hours a day. It might be, you know, reading research papers on AI. It might be doing, you know, tutorials on machine learning or GANs or uh, reinforcement learning and learning what applies where, reading books about it. If you're not doing it, and I am, I'm going to kick your ass. It's going to be that simple. And and you always have to recognize, you know, 99% of the businesses that are started have competition, And if you're going to have competition, how hard are they working? You know, you're going to have to outwork and outsmart those people. And that requires always having a lifelong thirst for learning.
0: Well, that was this was
1: the most inspirational. It it (laughs) was fantastic. You are a great guest. Um, (laughs) I learned a lot and I was inspired. So thank you very much.
0: Yeah, thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me on, guys. I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I like the give and take between you two and the diversity of perspectives, you know, because you're coming from completely different places. So that made it interesting for me as well.
1: I always find it hard to believe that Victor is a rising freshman I know. and that he just turned 18. We met when he was 17. So it's quite amazing to me how Aww. sophisticated he is. And he gives me hope for the future of Absolutely.
2: our country. Because I know I certainly wasn't sophisticated at 18. That's for dang sure.
0: (laughs) Thank you, guys.
1: I want to point out that I am wearing a very special Jill's pin today. And Victor is holding up his version of it. And he'll be wearing it on the next episode. Uh, It is, of course, a symbol, a logo from Intergenerational Politics Podcasts, which we hope you are following, that you've subscribed to, and will be watching all future episodes. Thank you again for joining us.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.